Hi, Devi. Welcome to Network Capital. Uh, our mission is to democratize mentorship and make quality career guides accessible to everyone. Um, we love hosting people who built their category of one, and you're definitely one of those. Um, could you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what do you do today? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Devi Lockwood and I'm the author of this book, which is called A Thousand One Voices on Climate Change. It just came out in August with Simon and Schuster. And um, to do the research for this, I spent about five years traveling in 20 countries on six continents on a mission to document a thousand one human stories about water and climate change. And this is the story of those stories. And um, I now work as a journalist. Uh, my day job is as the ideas editor for a nonprofit newsroom called Rest of World. And we cover the impact of technology outside of the West. But in the evenings, I continue to do this kind of climate related storytelling um, that started with this project in the book. Fascinating. I remember meeting you four years back in uh, Denmark and then uh, you were doing research for this book, and I thought uh, that the way you went about it was fascinating. So long journey, congratulations. It's uh, a delight to see your book finally out. Tell us about your writing process. How did you get interested in writing the written word for the first time? Um, sure, yeah. So um, I think I've always been kind of interested in storytelling um, and started out really falling in love with poetry. I remember... Um, reading a poem by a writer named Valerie Worth about uh, zinnias, the flower, when I was a kid. And it just uh, was such an impactful and beautiful piece of writing. And um, so I started writing on my own after that and um, studied folklore and mythology for my undergraduate degree, which um, let me uh, take a bunch of creative writing classes on the side, but also at the same time, I was learning about global traditions of storytelling and different ways that people um, communicate stories and through that identity and belonging around the world. And um, my senior year, I did this bike trip um, the summer before senior year, uh, down 800 miles of the Mississippi River. And along the way, I recorded stories from people I met. And um, ended up writing <laughs> uh, poems that were inspired by those people's stories for my thesis. And it was a lot of fun. I loved the interviewing, but the writing, transforming that into poetry didn't feel quite right. Um, but I knew that I wanted to continue doing a similar kind of storytelling work and um, was fortunate to get a grant that let me continue doing it and um, kind of fell sideways into nonfiction writing and journalism um, centered around environmental issues after that. Yeah, one question we always try to answer on Network Capital is how people discover their passion. So mm. in your case, it uh, it seems like it was experimentative. And in college, I think you went to Harvard, uh, you traveled around. And uh, what did you learn about yourself? And how did you fall in love with the environment, so to speak? Um, yeah, so on that first bike trip down the Mississippi, I uh, was wearing a cardboard sign that just said open call for stories. So I was 
open to any story that people <laughs> wanted to share with me. And the farther down the river I was riding my bike, the more stories I was hearing specifically about water and climate change in terms of intensifying storms and saltwater encroachment on the land. And in some cases, people making a decision to leave a community that they had called home from generations in the aftermath of a big storm. And I thought that it would be impactful to put those stories in dialogue with stories from other parts of the world. Um, but also I found those stories to be really sticky. I couldn't stop thinking about them. And um, for that reason, it seemed, it seemed to me like there was a bit of a gap in terms of how people were discussing and understanding issues like climate change in the general public and how climate scientists were working around those issues and discussing them. And it seemed like there was a communication gap between the two that I could um, help to try to fill through um, interviews and also different techniques of writing like metaphor. And so it seemed like it would be a good use of my time <laughs> and skills to um, try to help bridge that gap with stories. And what was that disconnect that you discovered? I think it's part of your book as well, that disconnect. And I think you've done a phenomenal job documenting it, but it'll be great yeah. to explore the origins. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I mean, so uh, climate change is often communicated in very abstract and numerical terms. We can talk about degrees of temperature change or millimeters of sea level rise. And it's really hard to understand what that feels like or how that impacts people and their lives. And so what I wanted to do was in this book to um, interview people who are experiencing the impacts of climate change firsthand and then to make those impacts um, easier to understand in a kind of textured and embodied way. Yeah. And you've written about some of them in the New York Times, now at the rest of the world as well. Um, tell us about, um, you decided to study right after Harvard again, right? Did you get another um, degree? Yeah, it wasn't right after. There were a couple years of travel in between, um, but I completed in 2019 a master's degree in science journalism at MIT. And um, that was really just um, <laughs> wanting to lead myself in the direction of a staff writing job. And um, I had found that in the course of the journey, I had interviewed a handful of climate scientists who were doing some really interesting work. And it was exactly that trans, um, translation gap that I <laughs> mentioned before where um, we need more in the way of science communication and distilling these complex subjects for a general interest audience. And that seemed like um, something I wanted to continue to do in a more concentrated way. And that pursuing this degree would allow me to do exactly that. And you did, you landed up a phenomenal dream job, uh, people would say, uh, as a yeah. fellow at the New York Times, right? Yeah, it was, was, it it was fantastic. I, uh, yeah. I worked for a year during this fellowship in the opinion section and edited opinion essays um, and was able to bring in contributors from um, all over. And that was a really great experience. I read all your essays uh, and I read generally anything you write, but uh, there was one essay that really struck me where you, uh, where you traveled um, and met this woman and uh, Tell us about the art of collecting the story and uh, what did you, uh, how did that story come to life? Sure, sorry, could you give me just a few more clues about which one, which essay that yeah. was? 
Yeah, you'd gone to uh, meet this woman uh, who I think had lost someone or was uh, reminiscing on uh, a story of the past. And uh, you were talking about uh, that entire piece was about that reflection. Oh, sure. Was it about my friendship with um, yes. like intergenerational friendships? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. So happy, happy to talk about that. Um, so the, the woman, her name is Cora Brooks. Um, she's passed away. But um, in the last couple of years of her life, I was really fortunate to um, travel and meet with her a couple of times. I was living in Boston at the time and she was living up here in Vermont. And um, Cora and I connected because her papers are archived at Harvard in the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America. And I, as an undergraduate, applied for a research grant where I um, proposed to do a project where I was looking at the work of female poets who had their papers archived at the Schlesinger. And I um, started alphabetically by last name with this woman named Cora Brooks and never got to anyone else because her papers were so <laughs> interesting and I didn't want to stop reading them. Um, and she not only was a poet, but had started a hotline um, for women who were experiencing domestic violence and needed um, a safe place to stay in rural Vermont. Um, she was also really active as a uh, protester against various wars um, and also against nuclear power in Vermont. And um, yeah, I just loved reading her stories and her diaries and her letters. And uh, I realized after a couple of months that she was still alive and that her address was in the papers. And I figured if she was older, she probably hadn't moved in the last couple of years. Um, so I wrote her a letter and asked if she might come to Harvard to visit. And she said, no, I'm much too old to come. But she wrote back right away and said, you should come and visit me. And it was just such a beautiful experience. I traveled up that winter and, and stayed with her for a couple of days. And she taught me how to make bread and we would watercolor paint postcards and just share stories and cook together. And um, we became friends and that friendship lasted for, for several years until she passed away. But um, I wrote an essay for um, Sunday Review in the New York Times opinion section, kind of talking about the importance of intergenerational friendships and what that friendship meant to me at that point in my life, um, in my early 20s. And uh, yeah, I continue to be grateful for um, what, what that friendship gave me. You know, interestingly, even in my book, there's a chapter on intergenerational leadership which is why I read it with a different lens. I had talked about how companies of today really need to have people across age groups, both young and old, so that people can learn from each other. And you've taken a much more poetic sense, uh, a sense of capturing that story. So um, many of our readers are really interested in how stories come together. What does the art and craft and rigor of writing look like? You obviously sure. studied, documented this for a while. Could you, through the story, just walk us through what were some of the most exciting parts and challenging parts of putting this together. How did you structure it, edit it, how much time it took? Yeah, well, so the interviews themselves I started doing in 2013. Um, so it was around five years of documenting and recording material, both in audio and I, I kept a blog along the way. I wrote a whole bunch of social media posts and um, revisited all of that material. Um, 
when I was writing, working on the draft. So I wrote it mostly during the pandemic year and mostly at night because I have a day job. Hmm. Um, so it was pretty unglamorous, right? I was um, writing from uh, 8 p.m. until I fell asleep at my laptop. Um, I used a program called Scrivener, which I would recommend to anyone who's working on a long form writing project. Uh, what's great about Scrivener is that um, it's pretty cheap. It's around, I think, 50 US dollars. Don't quote me on that. But um, you can use it offline, which is great for signing out. Um, and it's kind of like digital note cards. So you can write different sections of a bigger project, but then also rearrange those sections in different orders. So I find if I'm working on just one big Google Doc or Word document, you know, you have to scroll for eight years before you finally yeah. get down to the section you're working on. And it can also feel really overwhelming working on what feels like the whole thing at once. So Scrivener is fantastic because you can just work on one little piece at a time. Um, and in terms of the organization, you know, I struggled a little bit with this because I thought at first maybe it would make the most sense to organize the book chronologically. Um, but there were parts of the journey where I traveled in a bit of a zigzag pattern and um, I thought that that might be a little bit incoherent. So I decided to organize it loosely chronologically, but primarily by geography. Each chapter is a different country. Um, and those are loosely organized into regions and geographic areas, which means that sometimes it jumps around a bit in time. Um, but I wanted to maintain kind of geography as the core organizing principle. Um, and then I found it just to be very helpful because I, you know, had one big deadline. Um, but I set that big deadline into many smaller deadlines and um, did my best to maintain those. And um, that I found to be very helpful for, again, breaking down this larger project into many smaller pieces that felt achievable over time. Yeah, um, organizing something like as complex is challenging, right? And maintaining a deadline, having a day job, all of this, it requires really strict discipline uh, of, uh, of writing and your overall schedule. Um, tell us about, uh, uh, you know, your travels and how did you research for these chapters? What were some of the, you know, more most exciting parts of curating this or writing all of it? Um, yeah, so the travel itself happened, um, about half of it was by bicycle and half of it was not. Um, and sometimes I would just have a general direction um, that I knew I wanted to go in, but uh, a lot of it was just figuring things out on the go. I had a little bit of a plan, but not too much of a plan. So that allowed, I think, for more in the way of spontaneity and being able to say yes to things that I might not have said yes to otherwise. And um, yeah, I, I traveled with this cardboard sign and said, tell me a story about water on one side and tell me a story about climate change on the other. And I would wear that um, when I was just kind of walking around different places and people would approach me and either offer to tell me a story or suggest someone who had a great story that they knew of who I should speak with. And um, I found that just around the world, people were very generous in um, sharing those stories and in um, kind of, yeah, just, just being willing to, <laughs> to communicate in that way. What about language and or cultural barriers? Did you face any? What were some challenges that people embarking upon such a mission uh, should expect? Sure. Yeah. So at first, I didn't want to go anywhere where English wasn't the primary language because I was worried about exactly that. Um, but 
uh, some of the zigzag flow of the journey led me um, to Thailand. And so I uh, had a friend of a friend help me translate the cardboard sign into Thai and also was able to um, have kind of a couple of paragraphs translated introducing who I was, what I was doing, why I was doing it, would someone like to share a story? And um, that combined with a lot of body language <laughs> was in some cases enough um, to get people's consent to turn the audio recorder on. And so for some of those stories, I didn't know what they said until I came back home and um, had them translated. <laughs> and uh, it was a very exciting experience to um, figure that out in some cases a couple years down the line. Um, but yeah, in some countries I worked with a translator, um, briefly in China and then also in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan I traveled with people who were able to help me out with kind of simultaneous translation. Um, but again, in some cases it was <laughs> not until years later and I do speak Spanish. So that, that was helpful, um, in, in right. some contexts. Yeah. Traveling by bike sounds super exciting and super environmentally friendly. Um, what was it really like? What did it feel? Did people stop you on the way and saying that, hey, this is, uh, this is intriguing, this is interesting? Um, what were the initial reactions like? Did you expect that you would get that kind of reaction? Yeah, I mean, I love traveling by bicycle. I think, um, especially traveling solo by bike, it's a very social way of traveling. You meet so many people and people are always curious about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, I found that the other great thing about being on the bike is that other forms of transportation lead you to hubs that are often urban places, but the bicycle mm -hmm. by necessity, you're kind of in the places between places and speaking with people who might not otherwise um, have the microphone, right? So for this project in particular, given that climate change is a global issue with such highly localized impacts, I found that it was really great to be on the bike because I was able to have conversations that I wouldn't be able to have if I was only traveling in cities or using other forms of transportation. Um, and the other great thing just personally is because so much of the documenting this audio was so intensely personal, um, I was able to have this time by myself on the bike to hmm. um, sort of think through all of the stories that I had just heard. And um, sometimes I would pause and pull over and just like scribble something down because I couldn't get it out of my head. Uh, but having that uh, alone time with myself, I found to be a really great counterpoint to recording the stories themselves. Devi, uh, how did you pick the, uh, pick the countries where you collected these stories, the places? Um, so when I was first designing the early stages of this trip and applying to grants, um, I was doing homework, <laughs> sitting across the table from a friend of mine who was taking a politics of immigration course, and she introduced me to and kind of tossed an article my way about um, Tuvalu, which is a coral atoll nation in the Pacific, and the idea of climate refugees or people from Tuvalu um, having a special visa relationship set up with New Zealand such that it's relatively easy for people to apply for a lottery and migrate. And I was like, oh, cool. I don't even know where Tuvalu is. So I, I looked it up on the map and um, decided that that was one of the first places I wanted to go. And then um, zooming out a bit, uh, all the flights to Tuvalu went through Fiji. So I figured when else in my life am I gonna have the opportunity to go to Fiji for a couple of months? So added that to the map. And then um, New Zealand was right there. 
Um, and I've heard, I had heard that New Zealand was a great place to ride bikes. So, um, and then beyond that, my original plan after I had visited those countries was to go to the UK and then back home and that would be a year. And what happened was um, when I got on my bicycle in New Zealand, I felt within myself this deep urge to slow down um, and wanted to um, really take my time rather than rush through it. And I uh, decided to crowdfund the money to take a cargo ship to Australia and um, spent about six months cycling up the east coast of Australia and then hitched a ride on two sailboats and ended up back in New Zealand, even though that wasn't my intention, and then um, continued to try to get a boat going anywhere that wasn't Australia, but it didn't work out. So then I bought a cheap flight to Bangkok and then was in Thailand and Laos and Cambodia on the bicycle. And then it turned into rainy season. And um, I went back home for several months and then started doing legs of the journey that were possible to do without the bike or easier to do without the bike. Um, so it, it was kind of chaotic, but um, it, with a little bit of planning, just the right amount of planning, I think I was able to um, make the most of the experience. Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. I have so many questions on this, but I have to tell you a small story. Do you know our okay. website, networkcapital.tv? Uh-huh. So <laughs> .tv, dot .tv, yeah. Yeah, yeah. .tv uh, is, many, is also what people think of when they uh, think of Tuvalu, the country. And, uh, you know, once I was speaking to somebody and he said that, how did he choose Tuvalu as, uh, you know, your uh, URL? And I said, oh, did I? I thought that I'd chosen .tv as in like Twitch TV, Network Capital TV, Netflix TV, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out that it was a country. So maybe our stories were intersecting. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's super yeah. interesting that Tuvalu got assigned that domain name and now um, a significant portion of the, the GDP of the country is related to sales from that, which gets leased out, I think about every 10 years. Um, to a company that then resells the the domain name suffix to, <laughs> to different <laughs> um, different people, so it's it's interesting for sure. Uh, it surprised me when I when I stumbled on this, but just sticking on this journey, when you're embarking upon, say, the adventure of your life, having some sort of a plan but not everything figured out, um, what was the reaction of your friends and family? Were they were they thrilled? Were they nervous? Somewhere in between. Um, gosh, well, you'd, you'd have to ask them <laughs> directly, but um, I, I, think, I think they were super supportive. Um, I, I had kind of a strange upbringing in that I was raised by mountaineers, and my mom, um, when I was very young, was a single mom, and she also climbed in the Himalayas, and I would live with my grandparents during that time. Um, so I think that uh, adventuring was something that was very normal to me. Um, some of my earliest baby pictures are of like me winter camping um, while my parents were climbing. So I think that, um, you know, I grew up sleeping outside in a tent and um, being okay with the idea of a woman going off and doing an adventure on her own just because she wanted to. So that um, in, in some ways um, was really great. I mean, I'm super grateful for that upbringing because it um, didn't, it never felt like an obstacle, right? It was, it supported me. My family was super supportive and um, in this journey. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, we're all grateful, all the readers that you have friends <laughs> around the world. <laughs> uh, because it's so important for, for, for young leaders, writers to travel around the world. It's so difficult to document authentically about places you haven't really 
built a rapport with. And I think through your book, through all your writings, you do that. You travel, you experience, internalize, and then write about it. I think that makes so much of a difference. Mm, thank you. Um, maybe if you were to talk to me about some of your mentors that you had uh, in college and after who shaped your writing, shaped your thinking, uh, who would they be and how they sort of played a role in your life? Sure. Um, so one big one is Deborah Foster. Um, she was the the head of the folklore mythology program at Harvard. And I think one of the main things that made Deborah such an incredible leader and mentor is that she really prioritized listening in our conversations with students. And I didn't realize how rare that was until I was in a different context where that wasn't so much the case. Um, but she came at every conversation with a kind of how can we make this work and what's best for you? And what is it that you need, right? Um, so I had a lot of academic freedom as an undergrad, was able to devise this kind of creative thesis that ultimately led into this book. <laughs> so obviously served me really well. Um, and yeah, her guidance was like kind of gentle and light, but very, very supportive. And um, I think she's just a stunning example of what, um, what a mentor um, in that kind of context can be and can do for someone. And I know that many of my peers similarly benefited from that openness that she brought to, um, to her position. Um, and yeah, my thesis advisor was this poetry professor named Josh Bell, who similarly, um, he just gave me great books to read. <laughs> and um, I think that that is a really important function of a mentor early on too, is to point, uh, especially for writers, writers in the direction of, of things that they might not have considered before, or folks who are wrestling, writers that are wrestling with similar themes, but in a different way. And um, so that was a fantastic experience. Um, and then interestingly, I got a lot of mentorship through <laughs> a Facebook group of mm -hmm. uh, women and gender non-binary writers that started around 2014. Um, and that group taught me how to pitch and um, passed along editor contacts and mentored me um, in just the right way when I needed it that uh, got my career in freelance writing started off. And um, yeah, it was one of those things that was just kind of built <laughs> over time. And that's something now that um, given that my day job is mostly editing, I try to do um, as an editor editor is prioritize mentoring um, younger writers who are earlier on in their career because I think mm -hmm. it's just uh, or something I want to pay for and I'm so grateful for that help and that support that that group was able to give me when I when I needed it when I was getting started. Yeah, it's so important, right? Sometimes the right connection and nudge in the right direction, great books listening carefully they can make the world of difference between you know a good career and and one that's uh, seems like a rocket ship um Devi, tell me about the editing process i would imagine you would have to leave out some stories or cut out some sections of, of the book what was it like <clears throat> yeah i mean i definitely overwrote the first draft um and so i worked with a couple of different editors at simon and schuster who were able to help me um from it a little bit and then I also um, had a kind of group of friends who um, read drafts and <laughs> were uh, very generous in offering feedback 
And um, one thing I wish I had done more of, which is interesting now that I'm doing some readings of the book for different events, is I wish I had done more reading the book out loud earlier on in the editing process. Because I think that that would have helped me edit. I'm finding myself even still now making small changes. And I don't know if that was your experience too. It's, it's very hard to have the book um, exist in a, such concrete form because I'm like, oh, is it done? I think it's done, but <laughs> there's always there's always things that could be different, and so I think part of that is just surrendering to the fact that it's done, and needing to let go and move on to the next thing, and wrap up all of the lessons that I learned in writing this first book and just bring it on to the next one, right? But it's um it's sometimes hard to <laughs> hard to let go. Yeah, the first book is so special, you know, just um holding it in your hands and getting the first set of copies, one never really oh, gets yeah. that. I, yeah. I do believe in the power of actually speaking out. Uh, I tried that also after writing my book uh, when I was doing some readings like you. Because when you speak out the word, sometimes you realize, oh, there's a missing link. Oh, this word could have been different. And you realize so many changes. Uh, so maybe in the, in the next one that I'm working on, I'll try and do that uh, more intentionally. Yeah, I wonder what if every writer feels yeah. that way. It's like, oh, it's never <laughs> quite, quite done, but. <laughs> I know you write poetry as well. And I think especially for poetry, it might be interesting to try out uh, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting. I don't, I don't do it very consciously, but I find that sometimes I write the poem version of something before I write the full written out version of it. And it, it's sort of this like skeletal architecture that helps me get from point to point to point to point where I need to go. It's almost like an outline, but more, um, yeah, rhythmic <laughs> than that. But uh, I highly recommend it. I mean, reading poetry is always super nourishing, I find, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating what you just said, the skeleton process. Usually people put down points or, you know, have a rough draft, but, you know, using poetry as a skeleton could be uh, interesting. I'm going to yeah, try it. Yeah, it's, a, it's <laughs> worth a try. It's fun. I find yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, what, was your, what was the ultimate goal of uh, writing this book? What did you want the reader to experience, to take away? How did you want him or her to, um, uh, or them to change the way they um, look at the subject? Sure. Yeah. So I think I wrote this book for people who might feel alienated by the conversation about climate change as it is, or a little bit overwhelmed. Um, my goal was to really humanize the issue and to bring first person stories into the mix, um, to diversify the way that we talk about climate change and to just make it more accessible for people to understand both the impacts and the solutions that um, people are experiencing and working on all around the world. Yeah. And I think uh, towards that goal, you've definitely succeeded. And the first of many books to come. Did you encounter people who strongly disagreed with you? Because climate is a fairly polarizing issue, unfortunately. Uh, people uh, have. Yes, <laughs> I did. And, yeah, I did. And it was interesting. Um, I, I met a couple in New Zealand who are what we might call like kind of hardcore climate deniers and they don't trust the science they uh, believe that someone is out to profit um, from this kind of conversation and, and when I asked them more questions about that they told me that whenever they watched a news segment about climate change on the, their local news station they saw um, the same clip 
of uh, ice falling into the water over and over again. And for them, that just made it completely unbelievable. And I think it got down to a kind of lack and gap, both in science communication in terms of what that news station was doing, but in terms of science education as well. Um, And I think that if we can communicate these issues in a more accessible way and also um, have stronger (laughs) science education such that people are able to access these issues, um, that that will only help. And uh, did you struggle to have these conversations or did you expect these objections or sort of, you know, challenges on the climate science uh, to come your way? Oh, I just found them really interesting, to be honest. I tried to approach every conversation in this book and, and just conversations in life in general with the attitude that everyone has something to teach me if only I uh, make time for it. Hmm. And um, for that reason, I was very interested in listening to people whose perspectives and points of view were different than my own. Have you always been a good listener or did you become a better listener uh, through the course of writing this book? I definitely got better at it. Um, I I listened to some of those early interviews from when I was riding my bike down the Mississippi River and honestly cringe a little bit um, because I uh, wasn't really fully listening. I was always thinking about the next question that I was gonna ask or I was interjecting into silences maybe when someone was just thinking and um, listening just really with the only the intention to respond and I I found that that wasn't listening that was talking and in fact that the conversations and interviews and stories got much better when I took the time to slow down and um, you know ask some prompting questions yes but um, be fully present in a way and that method of deep listening is something that um, I was not very good at, but I like to think that I got much better at um, over the course of doing the 1001 interviews for this book. Yeah. Um, any technique or tips for people who struggle with deep listening? Um, I would say to remove distraction. Um, yeah. Like nod, lean forward a little bit. Um, just fall forward into the rhythm of someone else's voice right pay attention to what they're saying and and then to not be afraid of you know awkward silences sometimes silence is just people thinking yeah um that was my biggest takeaway from what you just said um so Devi, uh when you when you look at this book uh you talked about slowing down uh, a couple of times during uh, this discussion how did slowing down um make your book and writing the experience uh, better? Sure. Um, I think before I did this project, I had lived in a way that by necessity was just very efficient. Um, Mm. And I knew how to get things done quickly. (laughs) And um, that had served me very well up until that point. Um, And suddenly I was just, you know, answering more or less only to myself and my own design for this project and not in school. And it wasn't like there was a map saying how I had to go and what I had to do and what the steps were to, you know, be successful in doing this. Right. It was, it was, I was defining it on my own terms. And that was really the first time in my life that I had done that. And not only was I listening to other people, um, perhaps for the first time in a 
a deep way, but I was also, you know, having so much time to listen to myself very deeply. And when I did that, I encountered just this desire to slow down. Um, and, uh, I think that there's spaces and times in which slowness is important and spaces and times in which it's better to move quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. but learning to distinguish those two and then to act, um, is one kind of unintentional, uh, gift. I would say that this journey gave me. Would you call the past year and a half, uh, slowing down or moving at an accelerated pace for yourself. (laughs) Well, I mean, the pandemic, obviously it hasn't been a voluntary slowing down, but it definitely feels like a slowing down. I mean, I spent so much of that, that first year writing and editing, um, but in a way, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a slow kind of moving through molasses feeling and that all the days blended together. Is there something called a writer's block? Have you encountered that? What is this? term mean to you um yeah it's 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 right writer's block is interesting right I think that often it can be motivated by like fear or 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 just like a a desire to (laughs) overthink um things but I've found that breaking down a big project into little tiny pieces and always knowing where I was going to go next and um, just developing the muscle of sitting down at the same time every day for a couple of hours to work on a project um, made that um, inaction kind of disappear because I knew that that was the time when I just needed to get things done. So uh, you believe in deep work. So when you write, no distractions, uh, you know, cell phone away. Uh, is that your practice? Right, right. Ideally, practice. yeah. And for parts of it where I really was struggling with that, I would do the the like Pomodoro timer, yeah. especially with edits, um, because I found that that was useful um, just for really structuring the time when it would be too easy to fall into a, a dis- distractions um, if yeah. I wanted to. Um, and and just if you um, just look at your book, the reception that you're getting from uh, the people whose stories you've told, the kind of places whose stories you've told. Um, what are they saying? Um, what what was one compliment or critique that uh, spoke most vividly to you? Yeah, it's been really wonderful. Um, I heard back from a, a woman in Australia who I had uh, interviewed some members of her family and also stayed with them for a handful of days. And um, she sent a, a picture on Facebook of uh, herself reading the story in which her family members were quoted and it was just so beautiful um to see that uh how much she enjoyed it and how it felt really like it almost created a community in the process of of connecting these stories together so that that felt really fantastic yeah i mean i'm a community builder at heart network capitalist essentially a large global community. But uh, I think what you've really done through this book is also create a community. Any any plans of um, actually translating that into a, uh, a digital or a physical hub and spoke kind Gosh, of Gosh, I mean, it's an interesting idea. It's not one that I've explored in depth, but um, definitely something I'll be thinking about moving forward. I think one of my main intentions was... Um, to create an archive kind of more for the future, mm. getting back to that, you know, <laughs> linking up with the yeah. experience I had with Cora Brooks at the, the archive in Harvard. Um, that was 
super meaningful to me. So, uh, you know, not only am I interested in the idea of this community existing now, but I'm also thinking about people of the future and, and um, hoping that they can access this work either in the written form or through the audio interviews um, and understand a bit better how we were thinking about water, climate change and the environment more generally in this five year period. Yeah. Um, so in, in the years to come, what are like say three things that you would love to see differently when you think of water, the environment at large, the way we tell the stories about uh, the environment. Ooh, three things, okay. Human-centered storytelling, specifically the voices of the people who are most impacted by these issues to be front and center of how we discuss them. Um, I would love for more people to engage, um, not so much with changing individual actions, but looking at systemic change and specifically with fossil fuel infrastructure and, um, just engaging with different tactics of how to um, target that <laughs> directly so that it's um, ideally not even implemented in the first place or that it can be taken offline or shut down. Um, and then I also think that divestment is a huge and important strategy. Um, Harvard recently divested from its portfolio of fossil fuels. Um, but there's so much work to be done. And that was, you know, a struggle that was probably 10 years in the making, right? Um, and people thought it might never happen. Um, but there's there's lots more work to do in terms of um, getting funds out of this industry that is so um, entrenched in many of our global systems. And that's where I think the, the twang point is the ability to have, have an outsized impact that goes beyond just one people or group people to um, address the, the challenge at, in a more global way. Yeah, fascinating. Um, have you changed your mind about uh, something that you strongly believed in the past uh, say couple of years writing this book uh, or engaging with these subjects, even if you were to look back in time? You know, I don't, I don't think I really had a good handle on the topic in a global way. Mm. And so it's less changing my mind than just having more of a nuanced understanding of it and awesome. of the multiple impacts um, when it comes to, you know, everything from food security and water security to migration and what motivates people um, to leave places that they might call home. Um, I think that my understanding has expanded to be able to better understand those nuances and also to be able to make connections across disparate geographies to how these issues are interconnected and impacting people's lives in, in similar ways. Yeah. Uh, do you think your education, uh, which was uh, both say, mythology and say, science writing, the combination really helps you get a good gra grasp of uh, tricky subjects uh, such as water, environment, and so forth. If yes, how? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I think that um, it's prompted me to ask better questions um, hmm. and to think about these issues in, in just a slightly different way maybe than other people. Uh, is there another book uh, that you're working on or thinking about uh, uh, noodling around with the beginnings of a fiction manuscript right now. We'll see what happens with that. It really needs more of my time and attention than I can give it at the moment. Um, 
But yeah, I, I would love to continue doing this kind of reporting um, both at home and abroad um, when it when it becomes possible to do a bit more in the way of travel. Um, but for right now, kind of content with um, talking with people about 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 this book and um, also just uh, kind of making some space and time in my own imagination to travel to another place in that way. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I can't say too much about it right now, but um, <laughs> definitely writing one has given me the confidence that I would love to do another. And, and there's so much that I learned in the process of writing this book that I just want to apply to the next one. I'm, I'm sure you can relate to that experience. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and maybe just uh, finally, uh, for people who are aspiring to write a book or aspiring to getting uh, published, um, what's one advice um, that has most helped you? What advice would you give uh, to prospective writers? Yeah, I would say read a lot. Because <laughs> yeah. um, your writing will only improve for it. And also you'll be able to better understand where the gaps are in the conversation and how you can specifically um, put your own work into that gap yeah. to fill it. Yeah. Um, for yeah. me, I saw this gap in terms of how climate change is being discussed globally and wanted to fill that with this project. But there's so many, you know, books that need to be written or stories that need to be told that only you can tell. And so figure out, you know, read widely, understand where those gaps are, and then think critically about how you can be the one to um, fill them. Yeah. And just like closing out, um, suppose um, uh, there was a huge billboard um, on the busiest street in Vermont or New York or Boston, wherever uh, you call home, and you could leave a message for uh, anybody to read and reflect on your message to the world. Um, what would it be? Ooh, um, maybe take take the time to listen. <laughs> um, that we need to make more more space and time for listening to each other in in these busy lives that we lead because it can lead to really beautiful and unexpected places. Yeah. Um, uh, what a fascinating conversation, Devi. Thanks so much for your time. Um, we're going to make sure that the link for your book uh, is available so that people around the world can uh, listen and enjoy and reflect on uh, in this important subject. Thank you for writing this book and uh, thank you for being on Network Capital.